Our scripture reading this morning comes from Micah 6, verse 1 through 8. This can be found on page 1,447 in your pew Bibles. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's acute accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt, and you redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. You may, may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, girls, once again. And I'd like, you, I'd like to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to that text this morning as we, uh, as we sort of walk through it. And uh, let me uh, say a prayer as we get started. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word, your word of life, not just for us, but for all people. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit and uh, wisdom this morning as we try to explain the depths of your word and your will for our lives. Um, Help us to hear it, O Lord, as your word, and apply it to our lives, for this is life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So friends, in Jesus Christ, uh, the gems reminded us again of that great biblical theme of of justice. And if you're familiar at all with what the Bible says about justice, it's probably Micah 6 verse 8 that that you're most familiar with, to act justly or to do justice. And we've heard it enough times that we know what it says, but I wonder sometimes if we put enough thought really into what it actually means. What does it actually look like to do justice, for people like you and me to do justice. Well, Micah says that we know what it looks like, that God has actually shown us what it looks like. He has shown you, O man, what is good. He's shown you what God requires of you. He's shown you what doing justice looks like. He really has. And that comes out in Micah 6 verse 8, right? And we refer back just a few verses earlier to God reminding his people of what he has done on behalf of his people, what he's done on our behalf. Remember these things because this is what it looks like to do justice, 
God says. And what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to try and explain um, those four things just a little bit more, and then I'm going to invite our guests up here this morning, and they're going to give us some examples of what that looks like for God's people to do justice here in this world, to give us some examples of that. So, let's try and get this going. I've got four things to touch on, and you know me, um, I can get kind of wordy. So, I'm going to try and do this briefly. Pray for me. The first thing God wants us to remember, He says in verse 4, and that is that, remember how I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay? And I want you to think about that last phrase in particular, out of the land of slavery. That sounds rather dark and ominous, doesn't it? Almost like we're talking about the land of Mordor. And that's the way it's supposed to sound. Because the land of slavery is similar to the land of Mordor. The land of Mordor is an evil, dark place because it's, it's under the reign of an evil, dark person, Sauron. And the land of slavery is also an evil, dark place because it is under the reign of Pharaoh. When we go back to the book of Exodus, which is what God is reminding us to do here, one of the biggest questions we find in that book is, who ever gave Pharaoh the right to rule? Who gave Pharaoh the right to rule? And to understand that question, we have to go even further back in Scripture, and we have to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. And if you understand what's happening in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, you know that, that sin is snowballing. It's getting worse and worse. And we get to Genesis 11, and you find that, that all of humankind is sort of rebelling against God, and they're building this huge tower up to the heavens. Why are they doing that? They're trying to usurp God's throne. They're trying to put themselves up in the heavens on God's throne and kick God out of the picture. And what God does at that time is he takes care of it. He scatters the peoples around the nations, right? Sort of deals with that threat. And then the Bible turns to God's calling to Abraham, and we're dealing with Abraham and Israel moving forward. God does not address the nations again until Exodus chapter 5. So between Genesis 12 and Exodus 5, God is always speaking to His people, but in Exodus 5, He addresses the nations once again, just like He addressed Babel. And what He does is He comes to Pharaoh, this, this evil ruler, with a challenge, and He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And it's like a boxing match, and God throws the first punch, the first heavyweight punch. But Pharaoh counters, right? And he says, what do you mean? Your people. Who is this Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? So Pharaoh is asserting the fact that, no, this is my world, and I get to do in my world whatever I want. And Yahweh says, no, not, no, that's not the way it is. What you have to understand is I created the world, I rule over the world, it's my world, and you rule under me. Friends, one of the first things we have to remember or be reminded of in this call to do justice 
is what God says in Micah 6. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and remember what that took. That took confronting the powers of this world who have tried to usurp my throne. You see, when, when the Bible shifts to the story of Abraham, you have to remember that in the background there is this parallel story of all the nations continuing to try to usurp God's throne and place themselves in heaven. And that's what Pharaoh has done. And God says, I will not allow that to go on. And what we have to understand, friends, is that in this fight for justice, sometimes we have to remember that it's up to us as well in God's name to confront those who have usurped God's rule and God's throne. Injustice goes all the way back to Babel, and it's been entrenched there. It involves the usurping of God's throne by sinful human beings, and those humans are entrenched in this idea that they are in charge, and they are accountable to no one, no one and nothing. And so that's the first point that we have to remember is that doing justice often means standing up to those entrenched powers and their sinful ideas of authority and letting the world know that, no, this is God's world and we are accountable to him, all of us. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. God calls us to remember that he gave us Moses and Aaron and Miriam to lead us. Now you might ask, well, what does that have to do with justice, right? Well, when you think of these three, these three leaders, what they were and who they were are mediators of God's rule in this world. They're the mediators of God's rule. And when you think of Moses in particular, what do you think of? You think he is the one who gave us God's law, right? God's law. And what you have to understand about God's law is that his law was a fresh alternative to the laws and the ways of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had his own way of doing things. God has his way, and he gives us his law for how life is to be lived on this earth. Now, if you look at verse 16 of our chapter, Micah actually condemns God's people for following not Moses' way, not God's way, but for following Pharaoh's way. He says this, you have observed the statutes of Omri. Now notice that, the statutes, the law. It's not the statutes of Moses or of God that they're following, but the statutes of Omri. And all the practices of Ahab's house, he says, you have followed their traditions. And what God is saying here is, look, Ahab and Omri, the kings of Israel, have gone back to following the ways of Pharaoh. And that's not the way things are to be done. That's the land of slavery not the promised land. There's one name that's associated with Ahab that kind of makes this clear, and that's the name Naboth. If you remember the story of Naboth's vineyard. Naboth had a vineyard right next to Ahab's castle. Ahab wanted that vineyard. He was going to annex it. But he also knew that God said, no, you can't just take someone's land. It's their inheritance in Israel. Nevertheless, his wife Jezebel convinced him, and basically she said this, look, Nahab's just a little, or Naboth is just a little guy. He's just a pawn in the world's chessboard. Nobody cares about Naboth. 
You can do whatever you want to Naboth. Take your land and that, or take his land, and that's what Ahab did. Killed Naboth, took his land. That's the way things work in the land of slavery. Somebody did care, and that was God. And God said, no, this is not the way things work in my land and in my world. Moses, you see, taught us a different way of living from Pharaoh. And who is the new Moses? It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus showed us a better way, a way of welcoming children and caring for widows and making a place for the aliens, loving the last and the least. And this is the second part of doing justice, and that's understanding and living out Yahweh's vision for justice in the land. Friends, God has given us his word, he's given us his law, and now he's given us the spirit of his very own son, and therefore we have really no excuse as Christians in the world today not knowing the difference between justice and injustice, between the ways of Jesus Christ and the ways of Pharaoh and Omri and Ahab. We have no excuse. We have to know the difference. And God says, I gave you leaders. He says to us, I gave you the spirit of my son. The third thing that God wants us to remember is what Balak counseled and what Balaam answered. And this is a story from the wilderness, right? From the time before the people of Israel entered the land. If you remember the story of Balak, He was afraid when he saw all the people of Israel and he enlisted Balaam to come and put a curse on the people of Israel. And every time Balaam tried to curse them, out came a blessing. And the moral of the story was God's people are blessed. They're blessed. And they are blessed with the very presence of God. Just like God walked with Abraham in the beginning, okay, God walks with us. And God made that covenant with Abraham that I will always be with you and I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. We have to understand, friends, as the people of Jesus Christ, that we also have that blessing endowed upon us, bestowed upon us. It's ours. The presence of God himself is with us. And God's eyes yet are still focused on all the people who need to know his presence and his reign, and he has enlisted us to be a blessing to all those peoples in the world. That's part of our job. That's part of our task. We are blessed. We are God's people today. The great king over all the earth is among us. And in a world that kicks the little people to the side, God has instructed us to love those friends like he loves them, to bring everyone under his reign. And therefore, friends, there should be a boldness and a confidence in our pursuit of justice that we know that the king of the universe is with us. He is with us. Now, it's scary to confront the powers of this world, right? But when we know our God is with us, ultimately we know that we cannot fail in that task. 
Finally, God says, remember one more thing, and that is your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Big deal. Until you begin to think, where was Shittim? Shittim was still in the wilderness. It was on the east side of the Jordan. And what God is saying here is, I didn't redeem you from Egypt and then bring you to Shittim. I brought you all the way to Gilgal. Where's Gilgal? Gilgal is in the promised land. And so God is saying to his people, remember, when I worked on your behalf, I didn't just set you free from slavery. My work wasn't done until you were in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, until you were enjoying all the goodness that I meant for my people in the very beginning, until you were flourishing, until you were experiencing my shalom. That's what Gilgal is about. Gilgal is also the place where all of the people, once they crossed the Jordan, were circumcised and they were identified once again as God's people. No longer Pharaoh's people, God's people, which means no more slavery, no more working all day with nothing to show for it, no more kings taking your family farm, no more education only for the wealthy, but the fullness of God's shalom. Friends, doing justice means you want to see people flourish. Not just free, but flourish. Which requires from us what it required from Jesus. It requires the long haul. It requires a longer attention span, a lengthier perseverance. Two quick examples of what I mean. You can tutor one child, right? But that doesn't fix a broken educational system. We've got more to do to get to Gilgal. Second example, you can pass a bill against abortion. That doesn't change the circumstances of the heart that often lead people in that direction. We have further to go to get to Gilgal. Let me just end with what the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He didn't sit down until he reached Gilgal. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God says, remember these four things. This is what doing justice is about. And now I'm going to invite uh, Kurt and Joanne up. And uh, I hope that they're going to fill in the picture just a little bit more for us of some of the challenges and requirements that it takes to to do justice in this world. Welcome to Brookfield CRC. We are so glad that you are here. Thanks. And Joanne, I think you're going to get started. I want to get started telling all the gems in the room, amazing job, you guys. It was really, really special for... <laughs> it's a special day for us to be here on Gem Sunday. I was really excited when Peter said that it was Gem Sunday. Uh, 
I was a gem long, long ago, except it was called Calvinettes then. <laughs> gem is a much better name. Um, and I have a lot of memories of that time, and especially I remember the verse that we recited every single time we got together, Micah 6, verse 8. And I love that that is still the verse for gems. I think uh, it's a verse that is important to Kurt and I. We have spent our lives trying to do, especially the first line of that verse, figuring out what it means to act justly. And I love that you guys were up here talking to us about what that means. That's, that's very cool. Today what I want to do is, in the next couple of minutes, um, is talk to you a little bit about how living in Honduras, which Kurt and I have done for the past 35 years, has helped us to understand what doing justice means, especially living in our community of, it's called Nueva Suyapa. And yeah, there it is. Um, our neighborhood is considered a kind of scary place to live. There's some violence in our neighborhood, gang activity. Um, there's a lot of poverty. It's very hard to find jobs in Honduras, and so lots of the people in Honduras are uh, struggling to find work. But we've lived in that community for over 20 years, and for us, it's the place where our church is, it's the place where our friends are, the place where our children grew up. Um, so it feels like a different place today. And I just want to spend a, a few minutes talking to you, introducing to you some of our friends in Nueva Suyapa and what it means when we think about doing justice we're thinking, when we're thinking about these people. So uh, the first friend is Rosa. Rosa is an amazing woman. She is quiet, but when she speaks, she always has something important to say. And whenever I am with her, I feel like she is hearing me and seeing me. And she lives with her grandchildren and her son and her daughter. And every time you walk in the door of their very small cement block house, you can just feel the joy in, in that place and the love that they have for each other. The second friend I want to introduce you to is Albertina. She is my fun friend, for sure. She's the one who always puts her hand up first if in church they say we need somebody to do a skit or to, you know, whatever is going on. She's, she is up for it, always. Uh, Albertina lives with her children and her husband um, and is a very good friend of mine as well and, and has just amazing, bright, creative children. The third friend I want to mention is probably the one closest to my heart, uh, that's Suyapa. You see her there holding a pair of shoes because she and her husband make shoes. I own many pairs of the shoes that they make. And she lives in a very small house with uh, a lot of people, her children, grandchildren, her husband. Uh, it is always a, a, an experience to go over there. There's always something going on. There's also cats and dogs and birds and fish, and they like a lot of things in that family. One thing that all three of these women have in common is that they have an amazingly strong faith, and they have taught me about what it means to love God even in adversity 
to love God even when things aren't going right. And all of these friends live just a few minute walk from where Kurt and I live. Uh, and we live that, from that first picture, we live right around the corner. So we were, we were like a block away from where that picture was taken. And all my friends live within three, four minute walk of me. But even though we live in the same geographical area, our lives are not the same. And I started out telling you that the neighborhood that we live in can be dangerous. For Kurt and I, it's not quite as dangerous as it is for my friends. We have a car. None of them have a car. So we can go through the neighborhood at night in our car, and we can be pretty safe. Our neighbors have to walk in the dark, and often the streetlights are out. And it's scary to walk in the dark in our neighborhood sometimes. We have a very simple house, but it has a strong door that can be locked. And at night, when we lock the door, we feel very safe. No one's going to come in. All three of my friends live in simple homes with wooden doors that they can kind of lock with, you know, the kind of lock you slide. But if somebody wanted to get in that door, they could. They don't have the same sense of security that Kurt and I do. Another area where our lives are different than theirs is in how easy it is for us to keep our children healthy. Kurt and I raised two kids, Anna and Noah, in our neighborhood. And when it looked like our daughter was having an appendicitis attack, we put her in the car, we brought her down to the private hospital, and within a couple of hours, they had figured out what it was, they had done the surgery, and she was in recovery. My friends, when their children get sick, because everybody's kids get sick, right, they go another mile farther from where we had to go down the road to the public hospital. And the public hospital has good doctors, a lot of the same doctors that work in the private hospitals but they are extremely overworked in the public hospital. And the public hospital is always flooded with people waiting, with sick loved ones. And my friends go and they take their children and they hope that someone will get to them and be able to tell them what's wrong and what they need to do. The other area that's different for our family compared to my friend's family is education. Our kids went to the neighborhood school. We wanted them to have that experience. And they liked it. They made friends there. But when they came home from school, we had homeschool materials for them. We had books everywhere. Kurt and I had enough education that we could teach them things about science and math and reading. My friends also were really committed to getting their kids a good education. They understood that education was key to being able to get better jobs and to have a better life. And they would get their kids up every morning, make sure they took a bath, make sure they brushed their teeth, they'd comb their hair and make it look nice, and then they'd send them off to school with instructions to pay attention, do not mess with the kid sitting next to you that you always get in a fight with. Ignore him. Pay attention to the teacher. But oftentimes, 
shortly after they sent their kids off to school, their kids would come back home and say, school was canceled today. Why? We don't know. It was canceled. And sometimes it would be canceled day after day after day. And even when school wasn't canceled, there were 42 or 50 children in one classroom with one teacher and poor teachers trying to teach, but it's very difficult to have that many kids in the room. And there were no books in the classroom. If you go to the... Yeah, that's, that's kind of a typical looking... Those of us who are older remember those kind of desks. Those are the kind of desks they still have in, in Honduras. So school meant something different, or education meant something different for our family than it did for theirs. And these differences have had an impact in our families. Curtin and my children are now living in the U.S. They've got, gone to college. They have good jobs. My friends' children, who are equally bright and equally motivated, have not had such good fortune. Some of them have left Honduras trying to find work elsewhere. Some of them have gotten caught up in gang violence in our neighborhood and are in prison. And my beautiful re friend Rosa's oldest daughter lost her life in our community due to senseless violence that she had nothing to do with. So my friends in our neighborhood have only one option for a lot of things. They have one option for the school that they can go to. They have one option for the hospital that they can take their children to. And that makes a difference. If that one option is bad, that impacts the rest of their lives. So for Kurt and I, when we think about what it means to act justly, to do justice, it becomes trying to answer that question of what can we do to make that one option a good one? So that, as Pastor Peter said, our community can flourish. So that my friends' children can flourish and have the opportunities that they deserve just as much as my children deserve. My friends love their children just as much as I love my children. So what can we do to make the schools better? What can we do to make the hospitals better? That's what we've kind of spent our life trying to figure out. How can we make that one option better? And in just a second, Kurt's going to talk to you a little bit about, about how God has led us and the staff of our organization to try and figure out ways how to do that. Um, but I wanted to end with this passage from Zechariah 8, verse 4, uh, which is another one of my favorite verses along with Micah 6, verse 8. But I think it's a really cool example, and especially fitting in my neighborhood, example of what flourishing can look like. And this is um, part of the Lord's promises to bless Jerusalem. And I think it's also the Lord's promise to bless the United States and Honduras and my community of Nueva Suyapa. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. 
and the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Generations of people flourishing in their community. That's God's vision for what justice should look like for all of us. And I'm going to pass it over to Kurt now, and he is going to talk to you a little bit about how we are trying to achieve that with God's help in Honduras. Whoa. Hello. Uh, first three-person sermon I think I've ever been a part of. <laughs> Maybe the last. It is cool to be here. Uh, it's, it's been a couple of years, I think, before COVID. It's cool here to be here on Gem Sunday. It's cool here talking on Gem Sunday about justice and about education. And uh, Peter and Joanne have talked a little bit about what justice is and about for whom we are trying to do justice. And I'm going to try and talk a little bit about how you can do that, how we do that in Honduras. Part of what I want to convince you is that we can all do this. It, it isn't that easy, but it isn't that hard. And, and I think that's important because that whole, all that justice stuff often sounds like something crazy, like who could do that? So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we do this. And we kind of came up with this methodology. We start out doing investigate whatever issue we're going to talk about. Uh, Eric's here. We did land issues with Eric. We started doing investigations, like what's broken, what isn't working, and then trying talking with experts and figuring things out, like what would be our proposal of how, would, how, how do we fix things. Then we make that all public, and that's usually a press conference. And we have 30, 40 TV, radio, newspapers there listening to what is broken. Journalists like to know, like to see when you talk about what's broken, but we also talk about how to fix it. And then if we can, we get the ear of the authorities, and oftentimes they're the ones inviting us. After it's in the newspaper, they need to figure out what they can do to fix it because they look bad when you make whatever they are working on look bad in the press. And if they're interested, we will help them fix it. So you can see, like, that's no super complicated recipe, right? We, we all figure out how to do this in our daily lives all the time with all sorts of issues. So in 2010, we joined together in Honduras with the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, World Vision, Compassion. We got together all sorts of organizations to try and figure out what was broken in the Honduran public schools and how could we fix them. And you see on the left-hand side what the situation was, and on the right what happened afterwards. So in 2010, 26% of teachers were MIA. We called them ghost teachers. They were getting paid, but they weren't showing up to teach. So out of 60,000 teachers, that was 15,000 teachers. And uh, four years later, 26 down to 1%. And I don't have time We'll talk some more in adult ed. I don't have time to explain how that happened, but amazing, right? From 26% of teachers, MIA, just down to 1%. Kids were getting 120 days of school before 2010. A few years later, they were averaging 218. So 100 more days of school. 
Imagine how much more kids learn in 100 days. And then you can see test scores. The, the standardized test scores went from 37% to 15%, 57% in about five years. So if you have more teachers in schools, you get more days of schools, kids learn more. Right? So between 2010 and 2019, it was very hopeful times for us. We had figured out a methodology of how to make public education better in Honduras. There's two million kids in the public schools in Honduras. And what happened in 2020? COVID. Uh, COVID messed up lots of things for all of us. But COVID was terrible for kids' public education in Honduras. Public schools were shut for 26 months, completely shut. 70% of Honduran kids have no internet access. Almost no one has a laptop. So imagine trying to do virtual school with no internet, no laptops. So most kids learn little to nothing for over two years. So imagine a fourth grader today. Imagine trying to learn to read and write virtually in Honduras with no internet. And then second grade, addition, subtraction, starting out with multiplication. They're now fourth graders, and they've missed all of first, second, and almost all of third. So after 26 months of closed schools, we started to getting together a whole group of experts, international Hondurans on education in Honduras. And they said there were four things that we needed to get done. We needed to test kids to see where they were at. Like, where are fourth graders at? And in different areas of the country, things may have been maybe better and worse, right? More urban areas, they had more internet, they learned more. Rural areas, they're worse off. Or they're maybe better in math and worse in reading, or the opposite. We had to get back to 200 days. We had to get full school years. We had to get kids back in the classroom. We had to get school lunches, and this was a new one for me. But especially for the poorest kids, one of the main reasons the parents send them to school is they're going to get maybe their one good meal of that day. So having a school lunch was a really big deal, especially after COVID. And finally, it was really important to get parents, kids, community leaders involved in their kids' education, uh, not to make it just the teacher's responsibility, again, especially after COVID. So a new president took power. There she is on the right. We have a female president in Honduras, her name is Siumara. She took office in January 22. And the teachers' union was a very important voting block to getting her elected. And the guy on the left was the president of the teachers' union in Honduras, and she ended up naming him Minister of Education. So he went from president of the teachers' union to running the whole education system in the country. And there was a lot of pushback after this. They ended up, whoops, saying that testing wasn't necessary. They knew that kids needed all sorts of things and it wasn't necessary to test them. That it wasn't necessary the 200 days that we had been holding the government to. And last year, kids only got 97 days. 
and the school lunch program got buried in bureaucratic red tape, and very few kids got lunches at all last year. So last year was a rough year. We had almost 10 years of success. Like we had gotten 218 days. We had kids were learning more. Teachers were back in the classroom. And then we had COVID. And then we had a year of, of fighting with this new government and feeling like we're not getting it. We, we felt like we were in the land of Pharaoh. It was, a rough, it was a rough year. Lots of prayers, lots of feeling like prayers weren't being answered, and yet a need to be persistent, to be creative, and to continue. And I want to just show you what God has done just in the last few months. On March 28, the government applied a standardized test in 1,000 schools, 200,000 students all across the country. We're going to have results that are going to help us pinpoint where the schools need the most, which kids, and what topics, and it, it's super exciting. In February, the Ministry of Education sent a memo to all 60,000 teachers saying we needed to guarantee 200 days for all public school kids this year. In school lunches, the Honduran government tripled the amount of money they had spent on school lunches any year previously. And that means they're going to have plenty of money and food. They actually asked the UN to administer this program. They're going to have plenty of food for the rest of the year and probably the beginning of next. And in February, we only had 500 volunteers signed up. We are hoping for 1,000. I was frustrated. I was, <laughs> I was angry. And I don't, I don't even know how it happened. We now over have, have 21,000 volunteers signed up all over the country to monitor kids' education. So you can see how God is faithful. How, how we are... We have a miraculous God who comes alongside us when we try and do justice. And ASJ has been trying to do justice in education like every week when it was really hard and when it's been going well. And in the end, God has come alongside of that and made the results happen. So you can see, like, if I were to ask you, where is it going to be easier to make public schools work? in Milwaukee or in Honduras? I doubt any of you would say Honduras, right? And, and yet we have. So ASJ is working in a very difficult context, in very difficult topics. We have a hundred Honduran Christian staff making this happen. You guys have helped make this happen. Brookside has been a part of ASJ's work for years. But I also want to encourage you to think, like, what can you do in your family, in your community, in your schools, as a church, to build this society of shalom, this vision of what Zechariah gives us, where old people are sitting in park benches watching little kids playing 
in the, in the street. Like, how can we build that in Honduras? In, is Brookside the town here? Are you? Brookfield, yeah. In Milwaukee, in Brookfield, right? Like, that's what God wants. And how can we all be a part of building a more just society? Thank you. Thank you, Kurt and Joanne, and we look forward to hearing from you more uh, for Adult Ed just a little bit later. Let's, uh, let's pray. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you have given us that vision of that public park. <clears throat> it's a vision of your shalom, of your kingdom. Lord, it's something that we are eager for. It's also something that you have given us the gifts, the intellect, the wisdom to help move this world in that direction. Lord, help us not to squander our gifts. Help us to put our trust in, in your spirit and what you can do. And Lord, help us to continue to learn this morning from those who are, who are doing the work. And thank you for this time that you've given us to remember that you are at work in this world, overcoming uh, the ways of Pharaoh and instituting your own ways once again. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.